You are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. Grace and Peace Table Podcast listeners, Brett here, and it is so good to be with you yet again this week. So we are in the midst of a series right now titled Unclean, Drawing Near in a Runaway World. So this is a series that's based on a Christian book of the same title, Unclean, uh, by the writer Richard Beck. And my hope is that um, this just kind of gives us a new uh, maybe we could say a fresh understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus to to see him again for the first time, so to speak. So uh, last week we introduced the series by talking about disgust psychology. So this disgust impulse in us does a few things. It monitors the boundaries of our bodies. Uh, it expels what should not be within us. And it alerts us to the dangers of contamination. So this is why things like mold growing on food or certain creatures like rats or insects often trigger the disgust impulse in us. Now, uh, that impulse alone, that's just simple biology and psychology. But what Beck points out is that the danger of disgust is the way it invades our moral imaginations. It is not merely things that we come to view as unclean. It is people. And not just people with something externally unlovely or imperfect about them, whether it's that they don't smell good or they have maybe a skin disease or or something. Um, But the key line in that phrase is moral imaginations. We begin to think of people as dirty because of the metaphors we use to talk about sin and wrongdoing. For example, maybe you've even used the phrase and said something like, that person is toxic. They're toxic. Can you hear what a powerful punchy metaphor that is. Uh, Why does it touch something so deep within us? And why is it different than a metaphor like saying that person's on the wrong path? Well, it's different because of disgust psychology, the language of toxicity that plays on our moral imaginations. It plays with our fears of contamination because someone on the wrong path, well, they're not dangerous to you or others, but someone who's toxic, well, that's different. So, uh, I think you can see that that's kind of the, the danger of disgust. Now, this is, of course, a human phenomenon, as far as I know, like all cultures, all peoples everywhere. Um, but it does seem to be particularly challenging for religious folks, Christians included. So tonight, I want to start unpacking some of why that um, that is. So the title of the message is Mercy and Sacrifice. Mercy and Sacrifice. Uh, we have a few different scriptures though they all kind of circle around similar themes. Let's start. This is a reading from the prophet Amos in chapter five of his writings. Amos speaking on behalf of God says this, I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living. Or here's the prophet Jeremiah, again, speaking on behalf of God. Chapter 6, verse 20. I will not accept your burnt offerings. Your sacrifices have no pleasing aroma for me. And then finally, here's a portion of the same passage we delved into last week, but then we're, we're going to keep going uh, one verse further. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting the first part of Hosea 6 verse 6, where the prophet Hosea is joining in with the prophetic critique echoed by others throughout the Old Testament, examples of which we just read a few moments ago. But, but this kind of, this way of turning the phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that's a very succinct way of making essentially the same point. God seems to be saying, look, I want a life of mercy to others, not more sacrifices. But, but what does that mean? I mean, Jesus said, we need to learn it. Um, you'll recall, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But what, like, what does that mean in a day and age when we no longer really like offer animal sacrifices? Um, so to answer that, we need to ask the question, well, what was sacrifice all about? Now, if you know anything of the Old Testament, you know that the language and the ritual of sacrifice, um, both for animals and plants, it played a very prominent role in Israel's religious life. And um, the, the image and the act of sacrifice, it was a very a rich um, kind of picture. So I'm not trying to say this is the only thing it meant, but a key part of it that very much seems to relate to our purposes tonight is that sacrifice, the act of sacrifice, restored a sense of purity and holiness to the one making the sacrifice. For example, have you ever done something wrong and afterward you felt almost physically gross? Maybe you even were compelled to take a shower or wash your hands or something. Um, or maybe you, at the very least you needed to confess it to someone or um, at least say like a prayer of confession to God and ask forgiveness because what's going on there? In your soul, you felt off. You felt what we might call kind of unholy, unclean, right? That's the impulse from which sacrifice arises in a religious context. I feel unclean. I feel unholy. I feel off. And so I need to engage. I need to do something, a solemn ritual to restore me to the place of purity. So why does Jesus, echoing Hosea, say that actually what God desires is mercy and not sacrifice? Well, let's give this a bit of a thought experiment. Let's say you are um, a religious person and there was a, a time in your life, though, when you were a complete hot mess. Um, but by God's grace, you know, through Christian community and uh, scripture and maybe some therapy, I mean, you just, you know, your, your life started to come together. And not perfect, but like much, much better. And now you are on what we might call the right path. Now, what, what could likely happen over time? Well, it's very possible that you will become quite passionate about staying on the right path. You, you might develop what we would call a passion for holiness, a passion for purity, purity of mind, purity of, of living. And over time, as you stay on that path, 
what what might happen is that even unintentionally, at least at first, you begin to build emotional and relational walls between yourself and other people. You, you might say like, no, I, I do not go there because that's where the sin is. That's where the muck and mire of the world is. You might say, no, I, I will not spend time with those people because they're not doing good. They are unholy. They are unclean. And if I spend time with them, then I too may be dragged downward. See, what Beck names is that a drive and a passion for sacrifice, a, a drive, a passion for holiness and purity, very easily hooks up with disgust psychology and we begin to wall ourselves off from others. So when Jesus echoes Hosea saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What is he saying? Well, if sacrifice is the purity impulse that builds walls, then what is mercy? Mercy extends a bridge of love across the chasm that holiness constructs. And if you reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus, is that not exactly what Christ spent so much of his time doing? The religious folks had put up walls and Christ began to tear them down. In fact, Beck actually takes it a step further and he says, if you think about it, without a deep-seated human impulse to wall build, to, we might say, exclude, there's really almost no way to love because love is precisely the transgression, the, the crossing of the chasm. You might say that love has a chance to flourish when I encounter someone in their most unlovely, unholy moment. In other words, like that's the moment love becomes love. Love becomes love the moment it actually costs me something. The moment I'm called upon to in some way cross the chasm of disgust, of purity, or maybe even simply of just what I feel I have to give. Like think of a, a parent. When is the love of a parent most on display? Is it when their kid wins an award and they're there for the picture? <laughs> no. It's when your toddler vomits for the third time that night and you clean it up again. It's when you're exhausted by your teenager, but you patiently listen anyway. It's when your newborn has overflowed their diaper for the 10th time in two days, but you clean it up again. And to reverse it, when does a child truly love their parent? When does love become love? Is it when their parents give them Christmas presents and they say, oh, thanks, mom and dad? I mean, that's nice, but not really. It's, it's when that parent perhaps causes the child pain and they're tempted to distance themselves, but instead they choose the path of love and forgiveness. Or maybe it's even when that parent grows old and now suddenly the roles are reversed. And it's time for the child to overcome their own disgust impulses and change the diaper of their parent. To paraphrase the theologian Miroslav Volf, love is the decision to embrace when I would rather exclude. 
all of this has kind of got me reflecting on my own life and it's really pushed me to ask, when, when have I loved someone? When has it been hard? Because truth be told, I have a lot of people who just love me right back and um, it's, it's just not always that hard. But I remember um, a time, there was a, a friend, I used to get coffee with him each week um, when he lived close to me. He since moved, um, so now we chat on the phone. But there was a time when he lived close by, and um, he has some serious mental illness where when he gets off his medications, um, it can get really, really bad. He struggles with um, schizophrenia. And so he would go through seasons where he like wasn't showering, um, he would be covered with bed bug bites, he would burst out laughing at inappropriate times in public because the voices in his head were saying silly things, and... Uh, when when I would pick him up at the dart station, though, the for those outside DFW, that's the Dallas Area Rapid Transit, kind of our, our um, train system. We, we always had this little ritual. When he was about 20 yards away, I would open up my arms. Um, and he would come forward and we would embrace. I'd give him a big hug. But I remember each week, almost without fail, this became a moment of internal struggle for me because I would think about his hygiene or lack thereof, his, his long unwashed hair in my face, the bed bugs perhaps hiding in his clothes that might get into my clothes. But what was love asking of me at that moment? To cross the boundary, to cross the chasm, this is what love does. I desire mercy, mercy, compassion, not more sacrifices. See, disgust builds walls, walls of hygiene, walls of sanctity, walls of propriety, walls of right living, walls of morality. But what does love do? What is mercy all about? It overcomes them. Friends, this week, tear down those walls. Love, mercy, compassion, not more sacrifice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.